Hello and welcome to the TES News Podcast with me, Dan Worth. Later in the episode, I'll be joined by Gronia Hallahan to discuss some of our analysis content. But first up, I'll talk with Callum Mason about two fantastically exclusive stories published live today on TES. Callum, welcome to the podcast. Uh, great to chat with you, and especially today, as you've got two fantastic stories out, um, which I think are really important for the sector on on very important issues. Um, we'll start with the first one, which is a long read on the... I mean, it's a lot of things really, isn't it? But it's essentially that lots of schools you discovered have applied for what's called the Condition Improvement Fund, i.e. to help get money to improve your school buildings, to fix leaking roofs or improve fire alarm systems, whatever it might be. And they are being knocked back repeatedly, not just once or twice, but sometimes six, seven, eight times. Uh, I think someone says it's, it's soul destroying and, you know, confusing and, and madness, the way the system works. Tell us a bit more about the details of this. Where did it come from? What do you think the sector is going to have to do about this potentially? Yeah. So, so as you say, a condition improvement fund is a, it's like an annual bidding round um, that some schools apply to. It's, it's generally smaller academy trusts and some voluntary schools and, and six forms as well. Um, and they apply to it for projects to fix things in their school. I guess they're, they're breaking, like you say, leaking windows. Um, it could be like a seen instance of like collapsed roofs and things as well. Um, so they put together a bid. Um, they then send it to the DfE. And these bids are, are scored um, based on a lot of different criteria, including need, um, but also like project planning and things like that. And yeah, we found that Hundreds of schools have been rejected again and again. Hundreds have been rejected like three plus times. Um, and they're not having any successful bids at all. Um, and like you say, some dozens of schools are having like eight plus bids rejected without a single success. And yeah, they've described it as, as soul destroying. Um, and we've spoken to a lot of people involved in the, in the process. And I think some people find a lot of difficulties with the with the SIF process, basically, of, of applying for this this funding. And the major argument seems to be that the pot that they apply to, because they are essentially competing against one another, this pot that they apply to just needs to be bigger. There needs to be more money in it, really, um, is, the, is the ultimate conclusion. That, that's certainly what you come away with it, because this isn't sort of nice to have elements of school life. It's not like applying for an especially good playground or a state-of-the-art science lab. It, it's, this is money just to keep the lights on, to keep the lights on the ceiling, you know, to keep make the kitchen health and uh, adhere to health and safety requirements. You know, this is sort of... It seems like the idea that schools are bidding for this and losing out is a bit, he's a little bit emphasized, sort of wrong, really, a bit like, you know, almost Hunger Games-esque. And I thought the schools that have applied eight plus times um, and, and still not received anything, I think they almost deserve a medal just for perseverance, because, you know, I think after five times you might give up. But what what the other thing I thought was interesting was um, some te- head teacher said that they've actually, they sort of changed tact, didn't they? And they started bringing in external consultants to help with their bids. And that also comes up, isn't it? Like if you've got more money to begin with and you could afford that, you talk about a better place, so you're more likely to get the funding, which again doesn't seem fair because it means that the ones with the most need, the least money, the least expertise, are the, seem like they're the most likely to miss out. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely the message I got from speaking to sort of consultants and, and head teachers and business leaders at schools. Yeah. Um, so spoke to um, Stephen Morales at the Institute of School Business Leadership and he was saying um, one thing like a difficulty with the applications is that you have to use quite technical language to make your arguments. Um, and if you don't have access, if you're a very small school, you don't have access to people who can sort of make those arguments. It becomes more difficult because you're against much bigger schools, bigger secondary schools, for example, if you're a primary school, who might be bidding and have access to sort of surveyors and things like that, who can who can sort of improve the bid and make the bids look better on paper. But as, as he sort of pointed out and others have pointed out as well, 
just because you're a smaller school and you don't have access to those bidders, it doesn't mean that the kids in your school are any less worthy of having their sort of roof fixed or anything like that. So yeah, it seems like a, a difficult process and absolutely what people aren't doing, they're not blaming the schools that are serially successful. So there are some schools that, you know, have many bids accepted, but they generally are for things they, they need as well. Um, so it's, it's not like there are schools that are sort of gaming the system it's just that there are lots of worthy schools and there's only so many bids success that are successful yeah so it's just that's that is a fair point is it a system any system kind of has winners and losers along the way but i think it's certainly the, the, the key element that you've brought up is some of it's helped and some schools are failing um and it made me think you know we're going to hear later on in the podcast about a piece i i put together this week about the importance of having diversity on your governing board in terms of roles you know, having architects having project managers they mainly think with this piece that can maybe this is where schools need to sort of lean on their parent community a bit more and say, look, does anyone have architecture experience? Is anyone a, a building expert, you know, an environmental expert? Because we we could do some help here. And like they say, you just sort of proofread something and say, mm, you should probably term it like this because that's how we would term it in the trade. You know, maybe that's something where schools could could benefit. Um, overall, then, what was the sort of DFE response to this? Did they sort of acknowledge there's an issue here, or did they say everything's fine and this is just the way it is? So I think the DFE was saying that there are, they accept about a third of the applications, I think they said, each year. Um, so they accept a, a decent amount, they were saying. And they were saying they do give schools sort of feedback when they, um, if they're unsuccessful, to let them know um, how they're doing. And another point that I should have mentioned before, actually, as well, is you, you get a certain amount of score on your application for um, if you have like, if you can contribute part of the cost yourself as well. Um, so that, again, like you're saying, maybe means that, that, that schools with like bigger reserves, bigger ability to put money in can be more successful. But they said that's only a small part of the, the sort of scoring process. And they said that the main part was, was need, I guess, essentially. So they, they sort of responded to, to lots of the things we put to them in the piece. But I think the ultimate answer, the thing that we sort of conclude in the piece is that leaders just think there needs to be more money in the pot. And without that being done, you can do all these sort of window dressing fixes but it but it won't fix the, the fundamental problem um which is that probably more schools need to be successful in their bids yeah yeah nice pun there as well um we're going to move on to a second story that you've done um because you've been very um busy this week and another really interesting uh, exclusive which is looking at the school switch service for energy um i won't steal your thunder tell us the top line information that you found out and, and what it means do you think for the sector Yes, the school switch service was set up a few years ago now um, with the aim of helping schools save energy on their uh, save money on their energy deals, essentially. Um, so it, it helps them sort of access bespoke quotes, or, or it did. It, it's now closed. So it closed in March um, a few months ago. It was, at the time, sort of under a little bit of criticism for school leaders. Um, but obviously, the past few months have been massive for schools on their energy bills. It's a It's a huge part of their the sort of worries they've said in like repeated surveys. I think schools are, are concerned about how prices are going up significantly. So we thought we'd have a look at this um, service and see how many schools had actually been able to use it to switch energy. And actually, in the final three months before it closed, there wasn't a single school that was able to successfully switch their energy supply using using the um, the service. And if you look at the stats, I thought it was quite funny. It actually shows that between January and March this year, the number of schools that switched was was minus three, which seems very confusing. But actually, it's because there were three schools that tried to use it, but their their switches didn't go through. They weren't successful. So it's recorded as minus three, which I think 
is amusing, but there's obviously like a, a dark tone to it in the sense that a lot of schools are struggling with their energy bills and they will be quite frustrated to see that this service that was supposed to help them really wasn't quite clearly wasn't really helping anyone. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fantastic data point, like you say. Do we know why no one was really using it? Is that because they just given up on it because they knew it was closing, because it was too difficult? I mean, it seems like there's probably multiple reasons, but did you pick up anything like that? Yeah, so I think I've spoken to sort of schools in the past, and I think they just generally found that they... It, it was never massively used, to be clear. Like, it was... Um, even at its peak, there were sort of... There were months when, like, 50-odd schools would switch, but in the majority, it was, it was very low figures, like a dozen or, or less schools switching each month. And I think schools generally found they just couldn't find the best quotes using it basically they could get they could get better deals by by going elsewhere um and i think that probably contributed to the um the government sort of i guess scrapping the the service and now moving towards a a model where they're getting they're getting schools to sort of join frameworks and things like that as well um so i mean it makes sense that it's closed doesn't it i guess now given that we know that it wasn't really helping school leaders. Yeah, it's exactly. It's in some ways, is a data point to, to like you're saying to that to that argument. Um, but it also shows maybe that that sort of because we both wrote about energy prices at the start of the year, didn't we? And have and you've continued to do so since then. And it makes me think in a way maybe there just were no good deals out there. It was just all so expensive that any attempt to look into it, it was just like you know, like like on the consumer level, a lot of people it's like you know you go on the website, there were big energy firms, and they literally top like this we cannot offer you better deals, you know, do not call, these are the prices. And it's almost maybe schools are just sort of hostage to fortune of the way the world is at the moment. I think that's partly right. I think it's different for consumers and schools because with a consumer, if you if your deal ends, the deal you're on, you get put onto like a, the price cap, which is a fixed high maximum price that you can pay. But as a school, of course, you don't, it, because you're not a consumer, you're not a domestic customer, that price cap doesn't exist. So if you're, if your deal runs out, you probably can't get a very good deal, but you're going to have to get some kind of deal or you're going to get put onto like a deemed tariff, which would be much more expensive. So I think you're right. There are no good deals out there for schools at the moment, but schools are having to make decisions. They are having to choose a tariff to go onto, um, which is, is very difficult and probably, again, quite soul-destroying because you you know that you're going to pay a lot more, but you still have to sort of do the legwork to find the best deal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember speaking to Matt, the CEO, who said exactly that, that they were rolled onto a variable tariff, which was extremely high, but then they were kind of hoping it would come down. It might still be cheaper than a fixed deal, which was also exorbitant, but it didn't come down. And, oh, it's just, say, the headaches, the stress, and that money that you're spending on catch-up and so forth. But there we go. Well, two, um, two, and actually it's what we should add as well, that sort of links into the first story, doesn't it? Because, you know, a good energy efficient building with, with double glazed windows and well insulated roofs will save the school blocks of money in the long run on their energy bills. But right. when you haven't got that, you're, you're pumping out heat and, and it's not going anywhere. Um, but yeah, fantastic stories, really sort of a testament to yourself as, as, you know, the work you're doing there. And um, long may it continue. I'm sure the readers have found it really interesting and we'll look forward to more to come. But thank you for joining us. And we will now move on to the analysis section where I'll be chatting with Gronya Hallahan. Okay, moving on now on to the analysis content from the week. And we've had two interesting pieces around governance, which is something that I feel I'm hearing and reading about more and more at the moment. I think it's something that given this, the challenges schools are facing and how the sector is developing and where things might go, it feels like having good oversight and on these things well whatever is really important there's a lot of things that come with that um Gronia, you're, you're going to chat with me about a couple of pieces we're going to start from one from dr elizabeth malone who is an academic at uh, john moore's university in liverpool 
And she talks about how, she, how important it is for governors to go on learning walks back in the schools. And obviously, particularly, that's always important, of course, but she's talking about in the context of, like I said, particularly after the pandemic. And obviously, it's been very hard for people to go to schools. It was very much, you know, if we have to go in, okay, if I make it work, but otherwise, don't. Now we can go back in. Her piece talks about what she got out of it and how you can make this work best and why governors need to think about this. Um, I suspect you've got some good thoughts on that. What did you make of the piece and the point she was raising? I thought it was really important how she was talking about the need for having a pro forma before you go in. Like, it's all very nice and she describes some really touching moments that she saw when she was, you know, doing this learning walk. But she makes the point that, you know, you've got to think about what you want to get out of your time in the school and how using a learning walk pro forma can, can really help in giving the governors some guidance about what they can look for and when they're, what to do when they're in the classroom. And, you know, from a teacher's point of view, this is ever so important because when you have a guest in your classroom, it helps if that person has been properly briefed about what they can and can't say and what they should be doing with the children. It's important to bear in mind that not all governors are used to talking to young people and it's something that, you know, that learning walks will help with and having that kind of profession, professional conversation with them before they go in is really important to make sure that their presence in the classroom, they're getting what they want out of it. And it doesn't, doesn't disrupt the learning that should be taking a place, taking place in the classroom. Yes, you're right. That, that is very much, I think, the, the point that I thought was very interesting because I think she makes a lot of good points around the, the general benefits of going in and, you know, gaining your community and seeing learning action and the pupils, as you described, as a nice pirate theme in the piece, which hopefully will entice them to read it who hasn't read it already. But I think, you, like you say, that the idea of making sure there's actually a good structure to the, to, the, to the learning walk, that you know what you're going to see, and that if you're going to go to a classroom, the teacher was pre-aware of that or made aware of that, because I can imagine how confusing or potentially off-putting it could be, having a, a strange face, you know, turning up in the classroom, who is this person, and well, why, what should we teach, and all, and all that kind of thing. So I think, I think that makes a good point, that just then. Maybe think, you know, you, you, you're talking here from experience, are you? I mean, governors, was that something you engaged with a lot? Yeah, so when I, when I was in the classroom, you... you you often had a, an email go around and say, would you be welcome? Would you welcome the uh, governor in your classroom? And I'd always say, yes, it's fine. And, um, you know, some governors uh, came in and did their learning walks and literally just sort of stood in the corner, watched and then left and others would come in and you'd, you, you could, you know, direct them to talk to certain children and, and, um, and, and it's knowing which children would be receptive to it and which ones wouldn't be. It's all that kind of stuff. So if you know that they're, they're coming in, it's much more, much more helpful, and um, I think both teachers and governors get get a lot out of it. Yes, that seems important, doesn't it? To make sure there's sort of benefit for the teacher as well, maybe in, in engaging someone who's got that kind of key interest in the school and how it's operating, but also brings that outsider perspective. Because obviously, in, in the piece, she makes the point about how they, you know, obviously, ninety percent of governors don't have educational experience. They don't know how the, the rhythm of the school works, how teaching works, but they've got a really interested, they're motivated to be there. Hopefully, you know, for the right reasons, they want to be a critical friend to the school and, and, and a champion where they need to be and, and raise the right questions. But it needs to be a two-way street. And if, I think actually, I'm not just borrowed the phrase that she uses in the piece, actually, um, that it's, everyone's there for the collective of the school, actually, ultimately for, for the benefit of the pupil, really. And I think there's an awful lot that teachers can learn from governors about the way that schools operate and schools work. And I would say from the other point of view, like teachers should be asking governors about their role and how governance works, because so often... Especially when you're new to new to teaching, you don't really understand how how that the systems and the operational side works in a school. And I think it, that teachers can learn an awful lot from governors by asking them about that. Well, that is um, a very 
interesting way to end that section because it actually leads us perfectly into the other piece we're going to talk about, which is something I wrote um, on the back of watching a session at the ISC Research Edruptors Conference, which is a, you know, a, a seismic sounding name, isn't it? Um, and it was a session on, on governance and he was talking about um, you know, are leaders effectively supported well enough by their governors? And it was a really interesting discussion, actually. You had, you had three good voices on there. You had Ian Hunt, who was the CEO and chair of Haley Burry Almaty, which is in Kazakhstan. Um, there was David Axtell, who was a former deputy chair of the Council of St. Christopher's School in Bahrain. So he's he was that sort of governor voice, not a teacher. And Vanita Apal, who's the director of the British School in New Delhi in India. They were talking about governance. And and the the thing I took out of it that I angled my piece on was them saying that really governing boards, and they were talking internationally very, very specifically, but it made me think it's probably true in the UK a little bit, is you need to make sure you have a bright, uh, a broad range of skills on your boards. You know, you can't just have, let's just say, for example, eight people with a legal background. Great, you're going to have really good legal compliance awareness and expertise. But they say you need an architect, a surveyor, a project, project management experience, fundraising experience even even maybe like careers guidance type experience when it comes from that kind of world, that would give you a much more um, wider set of views to make the school operate. Again, I don't know if that's something you've encountered in terms of the, the makeup of governors you've, where you've worked in schools previously, but overall, what did you think of that, Grinding? It seemed, seemed quite a compelling debate point in the, in the, the session I watched. Yes, at my, at my school, we had a, a really broad range of governors and it was so helpful because, of course, when, when big changes are happening in, in a school and I, when I was working at, I'm thinking about the school I taught in for the longest time, we had a huge building project that happened and being able to have people from different industries and bringing in different perspectives, they really helped um, guide that project and help, help the school through that big change as it, it grew in size and it, it grew in facilities and we did things with the facilities that rented out to the public. Like it's all quite complicated. And when you've got people on the chair of governors, so working on the board of governors who can advise you through that process, that's, that's really, really helpful. And um, yeah, I thought the piece was ever so interesting, particularly because I've visited St. Christopher's in Bahrain. That was, um, well, I know that school. Um, yeah. Yes. So it's, uh, it's interesting to, to think about how things differ around the world and how, of course, you know, you've got different communities and um, different different pools of people to pull from for your governing body. And how do you find these people to be your governors? Like it, it does present an interesting set of challenges, and and it's interesting to read about how schools are, are working with that. Yeah, it made me think it must be quite hard. It's, I suppose in some schools, if you've already got your governing body set up and they they're operating very nicely, you know, no no issue there. But you do start to you know what is the same people or it's the same roles. Wherever we haven't got that view, we need on fundraising on, you know, architectures, you need to do a building project, we really could use it. However, um, in, in, in the conversation, um, Vanita Apple from the British School of New Delhi, she did say that they often she co-opt people in, you know, bring them in as and when needed um, to, to help. She gives the example of, you know, people on building projects and environmentalists and that kind of thing. So again, it made me think that, you know, I'm sure schools are, are always time poor um, and it's pretty hard enough to get the governors together and make sure that meeting happens that they start to find new people. But it probably distract me as if, if you can, if you can reach out to your parent community or even to a local organisation and say, look, we need some help with this. Could you come in? You know, that's good CSR for that organisation. They may actually have a connection to the school you don't know about. I don't know, it just struck me as an interesting point. And, and the final thing I thought worth touching on, uh, which was another point that um, Paul raised, which was that um, she talked about how important it is when you do bring new governors in, you need to make sure they are effectively brought in. 
And she talks about the importance of having a buddy governor, which I know um, buddies in, in schools is something that people talk about with new starters, new staff, and in, indeed in all organisations, that's not the most uncommon thing. But for governors, I thought that was interesting because you could have assumed the governor, someone, you know, a high profile person, they've got, they want to be involved in school, they, they, will, they know what they're about. But actually, it's a whole new world they're getting involved in. It's a shame to waste that person by leaving them scrambling around, not knowing what's going on. So a buddy, someone who's already there can say, look, this, this is how we do it. He's a bit, he's a bit no, get up to speed or things. Seemed like a good, sensible idea, but I wonder if people maybe overlook that. I think it's a really good idea, especially when you remember that each school's governing body will differ from another's. So just even if you've got governing experience for a different yeah. school, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to know how the new school works. So having a buddy on that same governing body is really, really important. And I think it sounds like a great idea. And if you're daunted by the idea of joining a governing board, how much more... How much more simple does it sound to think, oh, I've got a buddy to start off with, that mm. like, like, someone I can go to and ask questions and it won't, I won't feel silly for asking that question. It's, it sounds much more inviting and much more attractive prospect by having that kind of support offered to new governors. Yeah, definitely. Well, there you go, governors. I feel we've really sort of picked out some, some interesting ideas there, haven't we? From learning walks and performers and, and you know, making it a two-way street to diversity of boards and buddies and so i think it's something that i hope you know if people haven't read these pieces that they can both be found on the website under our, under our analysis section loads of other great content there from this week we haven't had time to talk about so please do have a look at other things but hopefully these piqued your interest do let us know on social media if what you thought or if there's anything that you're doing here that's similar or other ideas you think worth sharing otherwise Gruyne, thank you as ever for joining us good to chat and um, hope you've enjoyed listening